Well, this morning we come to Psalm 99 as we make our way through book four of the Psalms. And again, we are in this thematic uh, and gloriously uh, uh, rich uh, theme in the Psalms of God's reigning, reigning over all creation, reigning over the nations. And so today is no different. It's the fourth of the past uh, of the past ten Psalms we've done. Um, fourth one now that we have it beginning with this phrase, the Lord reigns. And it's good for us, the repetition of the Bible. You'll remember I mentioned this when we preached through Ezekiel because Ezekiel was unbelievably repetitious. And yet we reminded ourselves that the repetition is inspired by God in that he placed it here for us. And therefore it's good for us to hear. It's important for us to hear again and again the fact that our God reigns. And I say this because it's our instinct to forget. It's our instinct to, you know, it's like it's like our hearts have to be molded. It's like it's like bending plastic. It, it, it doesn't just bend and hold its position. You, you bend it, it tends to flex back, and you have to keep working it and working it. And, and that's what our hearts are. Uh, you know, again, our hearts are, as Calvin said, are idol factories. It is not our nature to desire God. It is not our nature to love him. It is not our nature to obey him. It's not our nature to believe him. We don't take him at his word. Now, praise God, he's given us a, a spirit of righteousness. He has changed our hearts and given us the desire for these things. And yet, throughout our life on this earth, we are constantly battling it. And we are constantly fighting it. And we will until the day we die and he takes us to glory. And so in this process, we need to hear again and again the truth of his word. That's why we come to worship every week. To be told things we already know. <laughs> very rarely do you come here and say, wow, I've never heard that before. Now, every now and then it does happen. But again, we're coming Sunday after Sunday and we're hearing things we already know because we need to hear them again and again and again. Well, this morning we come to Psalm 99 and once again, the Lord reigns. And I want us to think about this in three, again, like um, all these Psalms, you can kind of see the breakdown of the Psalm. Here we have uh, verses one through three as a, as a stanza itself, and then uh, four through seven, uh, and then uh, eight, uh, excuse me, um, excuse me, four through five, and then six through nine as the third stanza. And you will notice the refrain in this psalm. This is one psalm in which we have each stanza. We are reminded that God is holy. And I love it because it's three uh, calls to holiness here as we have in Revelation 4 and in Isaiah 6 that God is holy, holy, holy. That is the seraphim and the cherubim are around the throne of God. What they are singing to him and what we will have the privilege to close our service with today is the song, holy, 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 right? They are crying out to him and ascribing to him glory by declaring his holiness back to him. We remember that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is there in the temple of God, and he is overwhelmed by this scene of glory there. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the smoke fills the temple, and the thresholds are shaking, and the angels are swirling around him. With two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet, and with two wings, they are flying, and they are singing back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then 
Fast forward to Revelation 4, which we read as our New Testament reading today, when John is lifted up in the spirit and taken up into the throne room of God. And once again, like Isaiah, he sees a throne. And around that throne are the heavenly hosts, and they again are singing to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So this is a song we ought to get used to singing. And here we have the 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 psalmist reminding us three times that our God is holy and twice reminding us that we ought to exalt the Lord and worship at his holy hill for he is holy. It's not just that he's holy. It's that he's holy and we ought to worship at his footstool. We ought to worship before his feet. That holiness calls us to action and that action is worship. It's what we're doing here today as we gather, but not only today, but of course also throughout our personal lives. So let's tackle the psalm in the three uh, stanzas that we have here. And the first thing I want us to think about in his holiness, because that's going to be the theme. I titled the sermon, Holy Is He, off of the off of the, the refrain that we have in this psalm. And as we think about the holiness of God, let's take three angles at it that we have in the psalm. There's more to be said about holiness, but we'll just take three angles that we have in the psalm. And the first is his transcendent holiness. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all his peoples, above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. So again, we begin here, the psalm, with just this great declaration of his holiness, and then, in some sense, a visual of what it means to be holy. Because holy is a difficult word to get our minds around, our intellects around, right? If, if, if you ask my students right now, what does holy mean? They would say, set apart. That they would say set apart. And, th- and that's a typical that's a typical definition for what it means to be holy, to be set apart. And, and God is set apart. He's set apart ontologically, that is in his being. He's a different kind of being than we are, right? He is a, he is a self-existent being and we are dependent beings. So he is set apart that way. And he's also set apart in moral purity. But I, as, as, I guess as good, if that's the right word, as that definition is, it just doesn't get there, right? It, now, my students will tell you, so I guess I got to go back to school and work on this. But what, if you, I mean, imagine the, imagine the, as I heard D.A. Carson say once, uh, Don Carson, if you know him, but you can't imagine the seraphim flying around the throne saying, set apart are you, set apart are you. So it's, so, it's, just, it's like cardboard. It's like, bleh. Yeah, it doesn't get to what they're singing when they say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God, right? Set apart, set apart, set apart is the Lord God. It just doesn't, it, it must, be, it's something else. We know in our guts that something more is going on as the seraphim are singing holy, holy, holy around the throne than just you are set apart. And it's really hard to get our minds around. Again, I go back to D.A. Carson here when he said it's almost as if there, you can't define it that holy just means God, right? That God, you are true God. You are, it's the godness of God. Whatever that is. Uh, Rudolf Otto, in, in his book, 
uh, described holiness as God being holy other. And theologians have pushed back on that because there needs to be some continuity between God and his creation. But I think he's getting at something when he talks about holiness just being holy other. Like, you, it, it's whatever makes God God is his holiness. And in that way, he is set apart from us. It's the godness of God. When, when, the, when the angels are singing around the throne, what they are singing about is the unique godness of God, the unique glory of God. His unique majesty is what is taken up in his holiness. So again, it's hard to define because when we're talking about God, we are talking about a transcendent being that any attribute we ascribe to him Right, is going to misrepresent him because we are using attributes of things we see within creation and just saying, well, he's that but better. But that doesn't, that just doesn't get to the glory of God. It's sometimes it's all we have. All we have is to be able to take attributes of things here. We see what love looks like on earth, and so we we kind of exalt it and we say, Well, God is loving, he's the most loving. We see what goodness and kindness is here on earth. And and so we say, well, he's the most of that. Like that's the best we can do is just say all the good things, he is the essence of those things. But again, we're at a loss for words because we're dealing with a transcendent being. We're dealing with God. And our words will always fall short. They never hit home. They never reach because he is holy, because he is God. So holiness is a very difficult term to get our arms around, though we try our best. And we can look in the Bible and we see some things about holiness and it gives us an indication. And we saw one of those in Hebrews chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. That's something of what holiness means and this set-apartness of God, this godness of God, is that it cannot tolerate sin. He's a consuming fire. And if we are not right with this God, he consumes us. You saw a picture of that, and even in that Hebrews 12 passage, the author of Hebrews refers back to that mountain. And that was just the shadow, right? That that was the Old Testament type, Mount Sinai. And God was like, you don't so much as touch this mountain. If you or an animal touches the mountain, you will die. Because my presence is on this mountain, and if you touch it, you'll be consumed because I am a consuming fire. So you see things like that. We get the stories and we hear it. And, and they were so horrified by the, by the holiness of God and the sound of his voice and the, the fire on the mountain and the very words of God about this mountain that they begged Moses not to let God talk to them. You go to Moses, you go up there and talk to him. You come back and tell us what he said, but don't let him talk to us directly. I mean, that, imagine the people of God saying that about God. Well, here they are on this shadowy mountain. I say shadowy just meaning this is not the mountain to which we gather for worship. The author of Hebrews says, we're at the real thing right now. Here you are today, right at the base of the real mountain. You've come to Mount Zion, a mountain that can't be touched. But you're in the reality now. We have gathered before the true God in his true presence in the new covenant, that's where you are today. You're at the real thing. You're not at a lesser thing like, wow, that's really scary in the Old Testament, but oh, 
Praise God we don't have to do that. No, they were at the type. You're at the reality. Whatever that means, right? We get a sense of it. So we have to look at these pictures in the Old Testament and in the New to get a sense of what holiness means. But let's, I, I appreciate what D.A. Carson says. Let's treat it as whatever it means, the godness of God. The thing that makes God, God, and not just the best of all created things. It sets him apart in a category unto himself. And that is, he is God. As such, we're told here in his transcendence, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. The peoples here meaning not just Israel, all the nations. Don't you wish that the nations would tremble right now over the holiness of God? It's not even on their radar. Right? The leaders of our nation are not trembling before the reigning lordship of God Almighty. Right? Oh, that the nations would tremble. I love that the, the psalm is calling them to that. God reigns and they will have to give an account. Now, before we're too, you know, we have to be careful. We just point our fingers at them and say, hey, God's going to hold you to account. Well, he's going to hold you to account as well. But to whom more is given, more is required. And our leaders ought to hear this. The governor of New York ought to hear this. The president of the United States ought to hear this. All legislators and all senators ought to hear this, right? All rulers at every level, all parents, all husbands, Right? All school teachers and heads of schools, all pastors and elders, anyone in any authority ought to hear this and they ought to tremble because God reigns. And his reign is absolute. It will not be frustrated. And this is hard for us to come to grips with because we look. it doesn't seem that there's consequences. <laughs> People get away with all kinds of stuff. I mean, look, we, you know, we, we're not that far removed from the 20th century. We had guys like Stalin and Hitler doing their thing. And I'm sure people at that time needed to comfort themselves over the fact that God reigns. Like his rule will not be frustrated. But a lot of garbage was allowed to happen in the meantime. And it takes, it takes confidence in the word of God that even in the midst of that, when rulers seem to do what they say in Psalm 2, you know, why do the nations plot, you know, the kings plot in vain? And the nations rage against God. Why does God allow that to happen? And for long, sustained periods of time where it's like the rulers of this earth mock God and act as if they're God. And God apparently lets it go on. But in Psalm 2, you'll remember, it says, but God in the heavens laughs at them. And the day will come when he will dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. Like the, there is going to come a day. Be wise, ye kings. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. While there's time, kiss the sun, lest you perish in, your way, in the way. The Lord reigns sovereign and majestic in his holiness, in his godness over all the world. And the peoples would do well to tremble. And brothers and sisters, you would do well to tremble. You and I would do well to tremble. We have, as we've said it before, too casual a view of God. We have, as I said, I think maybe it was last week, domesticated God. Americans have made God a mascot of theirs. 
right? Again, so we can all stand and sing God Bless America at a baseball game, which I love. I went to see the Dodgers when they came to play the Mets, you know, took the kids down there. And it was, it was like this little moment of, I mean, they were honoring this veteran. There was a veteran there. They do, I guess they do a veteran of the night. I didn't know that, but I just know they honored this veteran when we were there. They brought him up and they showed some pictures of his past and, and there he was sitting up there and the whole place, boom, standing ovation for this guy. And it was like, wow, this feels great to honor a man who served his country. And it was, it was just a wonderful feeling. And then they had this uh, young man come out in the seventh inning stretch and sing God Bless America. And he had some, some uh, handicap issues. And yeah, he sang beautifully. It was wonderful. And slowly the crowd began to join in with him. And by the end, it was just this rousing stadium full singing God Bless America. And when this kid was done, just this rousing applause for the kid. And I mean, it was, it was, it was just a wonderful communal feeling in this stadium. It was a great, I haven't had that in a long time. It felt weird, like on a cultural level to have that. It was just a great feeling. We sing God Bless America like it's no big deal. Yet, yet, as we've already said, because on this day we are remembering the plague of abortion within this country, you know, we, we, we abort a million babies a year and we don't tremble. We don't tremble. We can sing God bless America and yet shout our abortions and go defend it down in Washington, D.C. without any shame, without any shame. Talking about, uh, uh, it was one of the senators in the thing who said that abortion is actually an act of love, okay, for, for women, okay? So she actually made the argument that abortion, to allow abortion is an act of love for women. So we can do this without shame in the same time that we would sing God Bless America in a time of crisis because we have such a low view of God that we, we have so domesticated God. We treat him like an American mascot who's there when we need him, there when we need to mint our coins so we can say, you know, in God we trust and feel good about ourselves. We do that, but we have a, we have a pathetic view of him. Who is trembling before him? Who in churches is trembling? before God. We just feel like God shouldn't be the kind of God that we tremble before. We shouldn't have a scary God. We should have a loving God. And yes, we do have a loving God, but we have a loving God before whom we must tremble because he reigns and he dwells between the cherubim. He's a God who is seated on a throne and the cherubim surround him in all their glory. If you saw the cherubim you would tremble uncontrollably and the, tre- the, the cherubim surround him and they tremble before his presence. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Let it be shaken by the news of God and by the name of God. Remember in Hebrews 12, everything's going to be shaken. It's because God speaks and the earth shakes. Because he is holy. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. And he is high above all peoples. Our God reigns over all the affairs of man. And over all the nations of the world. And over all the rulers of the world. So the call in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. That is he is God. Our desire for the nations 
is that they would tremble, that they would be shaken. But ultimately, that they might tremble and be shaken so that in verse 3, they might praise his awesome name. That's my desire for our leaders. My desire, I mean, I don't know our new governor, but that's my desire for her. That's my desire for my neighbors. That's my desire for all the rulers of the world and all our neighbors. Is it not that they would be shaken by the realization of the holiness of God and that they might praise his awesome name? So first, his holiness, that is his transcendent glory. And then in the next stanza, we have his holiness in terms of his justice. And here, here we often think of this with holiness, of purity, right? That God is pure. Oftentimes when we think of God, we think of light. Well, he says he is light. God is light. John tells us in him there is no darkness, right? And why do we think of God as light? Because it's pure. There's a purity to it. And our God is pure. And he's a God of justice. So verse 4, the king, the king who in his strength or the king's strength also loves justice. And you, Lord, have established equity. Right? The kings may love it, but they don't do it. Right? Kings, kings, the kings of the earth may claim they love justice, but it doesn't seem to get done. But our God is a God who establishes equity. You have executed justice. Now again, notice that's in the past tense. You've done it. We live in a world in which inequity and injustice seems to swirl and prevail. Right? So many wrongs don't get righted. So many offenses don't get undone. And we could sit in here and we could enumerate many that we have had to endure or that we are currently enduring, certainly that we will have to endure or that people have endured in the past. And who is there to set these things right? Yo, who sets it right when Hitler shoots himself and yet six million Jews are dead and Hitler is never, ha never has to account before the world? He shoots himself and, and, and does it the cowardly way. Now, if we don't believe in a God who establishes equity, then we just have to suck it up and deal with it. This is a world of inequity. This is a world of injustice. This is a world, and, and even, if, even if we had captured Hitler, taking this as one example of any number of ills, what would we have done to him? Tried him publicly? Made, at least shown the world that we deal with, and then execute him? And what would that have done for the six million Jews and everyone else that died in his hands? Like, how would that have made it right? Even that we know. I don't care how much the king might have loved justice. We know even that doesn't set the scales right. It's not like, okay, well, he died at least. Yeah, but how does that balance? And so what are we left with? Are we, we're just left with inequity and injustice and that's it? The scales just aren't, I'm sorry, it's not going to be rectified? But we as the people of God know this is not the case because our God is holy and he will not let injustice stand. Our God has established equity. He has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Now, if we have more time, we can think about, well, how has that happened in Jacob? But if nothing else, can we not fast forward to see how in Israel, in Jacob, equity has been established? Is this not what the cross is about? I told my students just the other day, it's like in the whole Old Testament, there's a big question mark hanging over everything. The, like the question of how. Right? How are you going to set things right? 
how are you going to manage this? How did grace and justice kiss? Like, what does that even mean? If, you're either going to be gracious or you're going to be just. Like, how do you how do you rectify these things? You have Satan in that passage, you know, I love in Zechariah 3, accusing Joshua the high priest for wearing the, the filthy garments in the presence of God because he's supposed to be in white garments. But, but as he accuses Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, is he not really accusing God? of accepting a filthy man in his presence. And isn't that the whole story of the Old Testament, that God takes losers like Noah and losers like Abraham and losers like Jacob and losers like David and makes them his men, makes them his people? Isn't there a big fat question mark hanging over all of that? Like, wait, are you just or aren't you just? And if you're just, how can you accept people like this? How, can these, how, how, how come these sins are not being dealt with? You you a God of a justice who who executes justice, and it's not until Jesus that the question mark goes away. That finally God is shown to be righteous and the giver of righteousness at the same time. He's the one who manifests his righteousness, even if it means the execution, the pouring out of his wrath upon his own son, who voluntarily takes up the mission. But in Jacob, justice has been established. That Golgotha should make the nations tremble. Because what it says is, if God did not spare his own son, then indeed he will spare no one. If God will pour out, if God is so just that he will pour out his wrath on his only begotten son, then my friend, Mr. President, Mr. Congressman, Miss Congresswoman, Mr. King, Miss Queen, your majesty this, your majesty that, mayor so-and-so, do not think he will spare you. And citizen so-and-so, parishioner so-and-so, he will not spare you. God is a God who has established equity and justice in Jacob, and he has shown himself to be righteous. And so what's the response to this? One, we who live in a world of injustice and in a world of, of frustration, over this. Our souls want harmony. Our souls want justice. And we live in this tension of disharmony and injustice. Well, for us, it's a matter of faith. We need to trust that indeed ours is a God who will set all things right. And if you doubt it, then look to Golgotha, look to the cross, for that tells you he will not let it go undealt with. But then secondly, in verse five, again, exalt the Lord. <laughs> Worship him. Right? He is the one who establishes justice. Get right with him. Again, the nations ought to tremble. They ought to exalt his awesome name. The Lord is the God who executes justice. Therefore, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. So he is transcendent in his holiness. He is pure, just in his holiness. And then thirdly, he is forgiving and merciful in his holiness. And this is the aspect of holiness that, again, if we're just tracking with holiness, consuming fire, like what does it mean for a consuming fire to be merciful? What does it mean for a consuming fire to be forgiving? Like I get, I get powerful, I get just, right? I get executing justice from fire. But here's the beautiful truth about the holiness of God. It is merciful and forgiving. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. What happens when you call upon the name? They called upon the name of the Lord and he answered them. 
He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinances he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God, and you were to them God, a God who forgives. The holiness of God is pure. It's a consuming fire, and it will consume injustice, and it will consume sin, and it will consume sinners. But God's holiness also extends grace and forgiveness to those who call upon him, to those who call out to him, to those who cry out to him. He forgives. Paul says in Romans 10, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And here he's saying, Moses and Aaron did it, and Samuel did it, and the Lord heard them, and the Lord forgave them. Our God is a consuming fire, yet he is a consuming fire, believe it or not, that extends mercy. And somehow within this holiness of God, within the godness of God, is mercy and justice, grace and justice. And that's a hard one for us to figure out. How can those two things be? Notice even in verse 8, you answered them, O Lord our God, you were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Those are two things that don't square. You forgive, yet you took vengeance. That's discordant. What does he mean by that? Well, he could mean, he could mean, you forgave, yet there were consequences. Moses died in the wilderness after all, right? There are consequences. We can even call them loving and gracious consequences for our sinful actions, that God loves us so much that he makes us hate our sin by disciplining us for it. Yet that doesn't really sound like vengeance. That's love. But again, we must, if we have Christological eyes, we must read all the Psalms through the eyes of Christ. And here's the reality about the way holiness forgives. Because God is holy, Forgiveness is never cheap. Because God is holy, forgiveness is never sweeping sin under a carpet. Because God is holy, forgiveness is never saying, you know what, we, I'll just act like it never happened. He can't do that. He's just. And justice means sin must be paid for. Were God to just say, you know what, I'll just act like your sin never happened. He would, be, he would be unjust. He would be disregarding sin and its consequences because your sin, even sin you think is just directly toward God, has complications and implications for others. Your sin against God hurts your neighbor in ways you can't even un decipher sometimes. But because you have sinned against God, it makes you toxic. It makes you toxic to your neighbor, to your fellow citizens. It has, it has horizontal consequences. And were God just simply to say, all right, I'll act like it never happened, does not deal with the injustice that your sin caused horizontally. Who's going to make that right then? Imagine God just saying to Hitler, we'll take the extreme case. I'm, you know what? I'm just going to forgive you. We'll just act like it never happened. 
well, what about the people who suffered at his hand? They just go, okay, I guess I just have to bear, then I have to bear the weight of that, I guess. That's not the God we have. Our God is not a God who brushes sin under the carpet or who just says, don't worry about it. Let's start over. Let's act like it never happened. That's not what forgiveness is, and it's not the kind of forgiveness that is bestowed to you. And when I tell you every assurance of pardon every Sunday, your sins are forgiven, that is not a cheap declaration. Okay, okay, God will just forget about it. God forgives and takes vengeance on the injustice. That injustice must be consumed by the consuming fire. The injustice of your sin must every little peccadillo, every motive that was wrong, every thought that was wrong, every word and action that were sinful, every single one to the little iota must be dealt with and paid for in order for you to be forgiven. And that is the holiness of our God, that our God is holy in justice so that every sin will be dealt with. And on the cross, that is what is happening. On the cross, the holiness of God, the godness of God is being manifested in bringing vengeance upon your sin. The consuming fire of God's holiness is encountering the incarnation of your sin. For Jesus Christ, who though he knew no sin, became sin. I don't think you can say it's stronger than that. It's 2 Corinthians 5. It doesn't say, he who knew no sin represented your sin. He who knew no sin, even the language we often use, bore our sin, which is biblical language. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes deeper than that. He who knew no sin became sin. For you. That is, on the cross, he became the very incarnation of our sin. He took our sin so much that he became sin. Now, again, we're not taught he was still a sacrifice without sin, but the identification was so tight that he became sin for us so that he might enter the consuming fire. And he was consumed by the holy wrath and vengeance of God. This is what has him sweating drops of blood, not Roman crucifixion, but the wrath of God, the consuming fire that he was going to have to bear on our behalf so that I can say to you on Sunday, your sins are forgiven. That easy. I just get to say it. Your sins are forgiven. Praise be to God but it's not a forgiveness that was cheaply gained. It's one that had to endure the vengeance because our God is holy and he is just. He was a God to us. Notice the personal language. It starts to pick up in the after we get that transcendent glory. All of a sudden, we start to get our God, our God kind of language. Right? The Lord, back up in verse 5, exalt the Lord, our God. And again, down in verse 5, you answered them, O Lord, our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his holy hill without fear. As the author of Hebrews says, we come to the real mountain, 
but we also come really forgiven. We come to the base of that mountain with the innumerable hosts of those who are already redeemed, and we come in the name of a new mediator, he says in Hebrews 12, a mediator who has borne the vengeance for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And so once again, what do we do? Exalt the Lord our God. Worship him, for the Lord our God is holy. The Lord our God is God, unlike any other God. Holiness is the godness of God, and our God is transcendent in his holiness, and he is just in his holiness. And shockingly, he is forgiving in his holiness. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy indeed, and we confess, we confess, Lord, Lord God, that we don't know what to make of it. We confess that we don't understand your holiness. We shrink you down to make you compatible with our intellects. We think we know you, but you are holy. You are God, unlike anything else in all creation, for you are not in creation. You are the author of creation. How can we even know you? Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that in him we might know you, for he is the image of the invisible God. You have made yourself known in the incarnation of our Savior. He is the word spoken by you, O Lord God, and we thank you that in him we may know you. O Lord, make the nations tremble, we pray. The nations plot against you. They, they plan in vain against your holiness. And we know that in heaven you laugh. But Father, would you cause the nations, would you cause this nation to tremble before you this morning? Father, give, even through the ministry of your local churches, a spirit to this land, an awareness, even a glimpse that would rock us to our knees of your holiness. And in seeing it, Father, may you give your church utter and supreme confidence to know that we are forgiven because we are those who are covered by a blood that cries out better things than that of Abel, the blood of a new mediator, even Jesus Christ our Lord, who has borne the vengeance that our sins rightly deserve and has given us forgiveness in his place. Excite us. We come this morning to exalt your holy name, for you are holy indeed. And we give you thanks and praise in the name of your holy son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our confession of faith again this morning is the Apostles' Creed. Let's stand together as we confess our